Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Chris Budd from the University of Bath takes mathematics into the dark territory of murder, suicide, betrayal, love, sex and conquest. Um. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, and um, I um, repeat um, my, um, the, I want to say, do come to Bath Taps. It's great fun, and we actually heard today that we finally got the sponsorship through for it, so we got, um, we're going to be able to run it this year. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to come here. Um, usually when I'm um, parading in lectures in Bath, I'm talking about things like differential equations or integral equations or stuff like that, um, but I'm going to tell you a bit today about mazes, some of the history of mazes, some of the maths of mazes, and some of the applications of the maths of mazes. Um, but I'd like to warn you before we start um, that my son had a look at this talk. Some of you actually in the audience know my son, and he said that it looked a bit boring, so he has animated it for me. So um, I, I have no responsibility for the animations which are due to my, my son's work. Um, you can hire him out if you wish. Um, <laughs> um, how do I stop this? Anyway, um, let's talk about maths. So, so um, the chairman asked you, who's here good at maths? And one or two people admitted that they were, might be a little bit sort of concerned about maths. Um, and maths, when it's taught, when I'm actually up here talking about differential equations or stuff like that, try to give the following impression about maths, um, that it's, it's a very uh, precise subject, it's a subject where you have to be very careful, it's a very safe subject, you know what you're doing when you do maths, 2 plus 2 equals 4 and so on, and it's a very logical subject. The, these are the sorts of impressions of maths that we like to give of our students, some of whom are in the audience, you poor people. Right, so um, that's the impression we like to give of maths. However, maths is not just that. Maths can be many other things, and so I'm going to look at combining maths today with a few other subjects we don't usually associate with maths, namely murder, um, suicide, um, love, and um, conquest. So uh, a few other subjects more associated with people like that than with maths. Okay, so how does maths relate to murder? How does it relate to suicide, love, and conquest? Well, we'll find many links in the next 45 minutes. Um, but here's the um, star of our show um, and where I start the whole story with this guy. Um, I gave a talk recently at school based on this um, talk, and I put this picture up, and I said, who's that? And one of the kids said, it is my maths teacher. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, that is the image of maths teachers to a lot of young people. Anyway, um, the Minotaur. Let me tell you about the Minotaur. There might be greater classical experts in the audience than me, but as far as I know, um, the Minotaur was the um, product of some um, liaison I think, between um, the Greek god Zeus and um, a cow, or something like that. Anyway, he produced this, um, and it's half man and half bull. So the bottom bit's a, um, a man, and the top bit is a bull. And this is a very ferocious chap, um, and sufficiently ferocious um, that he was imprisoned um, in a labyrinth, there it is, on, on the Isle of Crete. 
Now, the labyrinth was designed by um, a guy called Daedalus. And Daedalus is famous for other things. He's supposed to have invented sailing ships and also was the inventor of the aeroplane. Um, unfortunately, he made his aeroplane out of wax and it um, fell to a terrible end when Icarus, his son, was flying in it. Um, anyway, there's the labyrinth, and the Minotaur lived inside the labyrinth, and being a somewhat dim animal, was unable to escape. So there he was inside the labyrinth. Now, he lived on the island of Crete, and um, the king of Crete um, was King Minos, hence the name Minotaur. And King Minos had had a um, punch-up with King Aegeus of Greece. And King Aegeus of Greece, um, I presume, had lost the punch-up because the deal was that he had every seven years to send nine young ladies and nine young men from Greece to um, Crete. And when they arrived there, they were fed into the the labyrinth and they wandered around the labyrinth, got completely lost and were then devoured by the Minotaur. Now, this isn't great. You know, being devoured by the Minotaur is not, you know, most people's career path. And um, the Greeks got a bit fed up with this. And so Theseus, who was the son of King Aegeus, said, I will do something about this. I will sail with the seven young men and seven young women to Crete and see what I can do. So Theseus um, got in the ship and he made the deal with King Aegeus and he said, the ship has black sails because everyone's sad, but if I succeed, we will change the sails to white so that you know when we come back that I have um, beaten the Minotaur. So off they sailed, and they arrived on a little bay on the island of Crete, and Theseus got out, and he met a beautiful young shepherdess. Now, as luck would have it, um, this shepherdess was actually um, Ariadne, who was the daughter of King Minos. And as is the way with these stories, she immediately fell in love with Theseus. Now, Ariadne then did two things. Firstly, she gave Theseus a sword, because they weren't allowed to take swords on the boat, so he gave him a sword. And secondly, displaying a great mathematical knowledge, she told Theseus how to crack the labyrinth. And she actually gave him an algorithm for cracking it. And the algorithm went as follows. She gave him a ball of string and said, as you go into the labyrinth, unwind the ball of string, and if you are ever lost... Just wind it back, and you'll get out again. Okay, and that's a perfectly good algorithm for at least getting in and out of a labyrinth, something you can actually implement on a computer. Not that they had computers, anyway. So, armed with the ball of string and the sword, um, Theseus went into the labyrinth, unwound in the string, met the Minotaur, a big battle ensued, in which the Minotaur was put to the sword, Theseus wound back the string, got out of the um, labyrinth, and problem solved. So back they sailed with the nine young men and young young women, and Ariadne came along with them. Well, they got as far as the island of Naxos on their way back, and on this island they had a great party, and there was lots of celebration, much (coughs) wine was drunk, um, many tales were told, and at the end of the day they all crashed out to sleep, and the next day they got up, got onto the boat and sailed off to Greece um, with one slight omission. 
they left Ariadne behind. Now, Ariadne, by this point, was pregnant, um, and in her despair, she committed suicide. This is the suicide part of the tale. And, um, well, these heroines never completely die, and the gods resurrected her, and she is now the um, patron god, or may even be a spider. And the thread that Theseus um, unwound was, of course, the thread in spider's webs. So that's, next time you see a spider, it could be Ariadne. Anyway, Theseus carried on back to Greece, um, but um, on the way back, omitted one tiny detail, which was to change the colour of the sails of the ship. So the, sa- the ship got back to Greece with the black sails, and Aegeus, peering over the horizon, saw the ship, saw the black sails, thought Theseus had died, and in despair, threw himself into the sea, which is now, of course, known as the Aegean Sea, and thus committing suicide again. Okay, so let's have a look at Theseus' record. On the plus side, yes, he cracked the maze and he defeated the Minotaur. Good stuff. On the minor side, his actions led to the suicide of both his lover and his father. Okay, but actually, that's kind of par for the course if you are a Greek. Um, Well, a Greek hero, at least. Right, Okay, who's the hero of this story? Well, some people say the Minotaur, some people say Theseus, some people say Ariadne, but as far as I'm concerned, the hero of the story is the labyrinth. And this, of course, is a story about the focus of which is how to crack a labyrinth. Um, So I'd like to tell you a bit about the labyrinth itself. Um, And all um, of the labyrinths... Oh, hello. Um... Some of these animations are actually random, so I have no idea what's going on. Um, All of the Greek labyrinths and many designs of labyrinths around the world are based on quite nice mathematical ideas. And if you could bring up the screen and blank this, I'll show you how to draw a labyrinth. Um, So this is something which is extremely useful information for students because if you get bored during a lecture, you can do this instead. Okay. Right. Okay, so we're going to use blackboard technology for this bit. Um, How does a labyrinth work? Well, all of the classical labyrinths are based on what is called a seed. And the seed for the Cretan labyrinth is a cross with four dots in it, like this, and four arcs, like this. That's the basic seed. You can draw this on paper, you can build it out of stones... You can even do it on the beach. And I've done it on the beach, and it's great fun. Large. Okay. So how does it work? Well, basically, you start at the bottom, and you go round to what you find. There we go. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Here's the next one. And you see the algorithm? You just go round to the next thing you find. And as you do it, you start building up a picture. At this point, we'll find if I've left myself enough space. Just about. And the last one, here we go. There we go. And that is how you draw a Cretan labyrinth. Okay. And the Romans copied this, and uh, a lot of the mosaics um, that they've uncovered in places like Pompeii are done on exactly this design, except being Romans... 
and they like nice straight roads. They did theirs using nice straight lines. Okay, so it's, it does, it's on a square rather than a circle, but the actual design is extremely similar. So that is a Cretan labyrinth. And what's interesting is that the same design has been found all over the world. So there's two possible reasons for this. One is that the Greeks went all around the world, which I don't believe, or the other is that mathematical ideas are universal and people rediscover them everywhere they um, think about things. Right, let's show you Theseus attacking the Minotaur now. So we'll put the Minotaur here. There's the Minotaur. Okay, there he is. Um, And we'll put Theseus here. Here's Theseus. Okay, we'll give him a sword. And we'll give him some string. Right, there's Theseus. And um, here we we are going to find a point where mathematics slightly seems to depart from the the story. So I remind you the story was that um, these maidens would be fed into the labyrinth and will get very lost. So let's see how well Theseus does. We start off here and we follow. He doesn't actually have to sort of make any decisions yet. And round we go. Still no decisions. Oh, still no decisions. Around we go. Whoops. No, nothing yet. Oh, hang on. Nope. Still no decisions. Around we go. Uh, still no decisions. Oops. Hang on. Uh, here we go. And. Ah, okay. <laughs> and you'll notice that we've walked an awful long way but haven't actually had to make any decisions on the way. Now, I conclude from this that Theseus must have been extremely stupid. Okay. And all this rot about threads and Ariadne need never have been actually gone into if he'd actually done the maths in advance. Okay. So that proves it's generally good to look at the maths before you try solving a problem involving string and women and stuff like that. Okay. Now, let me tell you then about labyrinths. What is a labyrinth, and why is a labyrinth different from a maze? A labyrinth is um, the name given to um, one of these sort of constructions where you go through a very tortuous path coming from the outside to the centre, but you don't actually have to make any decisions. You just walk round and round and round um, until you get into the middle. And as I said, this... um, has been seen all over the place. Um, These things are built often out of stone. Um, This is one that was um, discovered up up in the north part of of Scotland, uh, built out of stone. Um, And they've been found um, in many other places. And what they think they might have been used for, as well as just decoration, is because you've got to walk an awful long way, round and round and round and round and round, they would have been used for ceremonial purposes such as um, dancing and religious ceremonies. Um, And mathematicians are actually rather interested in these things. We call them space-filling curves. A space-filling curve is essentially a curve which occupies a a, a large amount of space, uh, is, sorry, very long, but actually only occupies a relatively small amount of space. So in other words, you walk round and round and round and round but you still stay within a fairly confined area. And nowadays we study these things um, when we study things like fractals. So the modern theory of fractals, which is linked to chaos, incidentally, has many links in with these sort of things. Let me show some other examples of similar designs. 
Um, one of my favourite places in the world is this place. This is Maiden Castle. Um, and Maiden Castle was built by the Iron Age um, Celtic tribes um, as a defence, ultimately, against the Romans. And their idea was this. They lived inside here. This is where their city is. The Romans are out here. And you have a series of ditches around it, essentially constructed rather like the labyrinth. And the poor Romans are supposed to walk round and round and round and round and round before getting in. And whilst they're doing that, they can be clobbered with stones and spears and swords and stuff like that, and generally put to death. Okay. And, and these um, hill fort designs, where they had this kind of labyrinthine sort of ditches, um, were actually quite commonly used. And the chairman referred to my interest in maths and castles, and this is one of the areas, things I'm interested in. Um, the Rotten Romans, however, had a different plan. What they did is they sat around here and got their big catapults and ballistas and simply lobbed spears and stones in from there and generally put all the Celts to death by that means and thus won, um, which I suppose is cheating. Uh, here on the right, this is another thing I really like. If you ever go to Hereford Cathedral um, and look at the map of Mundi, um, this is a, a medieval map of the world, and they draw a picture of um, Crete. This is the island of Crete. And the island of Crete has within it um, a picture of the, the labyrinth with this design. Um, and they think um, there are theories that the walls of Jericho, which you know um, Joshua um, destroyed, as it were, were also a similar design, that you had to walk round and round them, um, and you got pummeled on the way. So this kind of design really appears all over the place. Okay. However... It's not a maze. What is a maze? Um, in the Renaissance, people had big houses with big gardens. And they were trying to think, what should I do with my big garden? And one of the ideas was that they might build puzzle mazes inside the garden. And Hatfield House, I used to live very close to Hatfield House, um, had within it um, a maze, as did many other um, stately homes. And the idea of these is you build them out of hedges, and poor, unsuspecting people go in there and generally get lost and, I suppose, have to be either rescued by the um, gardener or, or spend lonely nights um, with inside the maze. So um, these mazes got very, very popular in the Renaissance and we've still got them around. Um, and the idea of a puzzle maze is one where you actually have to make decisions in order to get from the inside, outside to the inside. So unlike the labyrinth with Hatfield, as you go in... At that point, you can either choose to go left or right. Okay, it's not completely clear what you do. Um, here's another very famous maze. This is Hampton Court, um, which features in Three Men in a Boat. If everyone's ever read it, um, they, they talk about going into the maze and they have to discover how to solve it with the aid of a baby's bun. Okay, it's a good story. So these are mazes. Now... Um, these mazes, as I said, are different from labyrinths because they posed puzzles, and puzzles are, of course, at the heart of what mathematics is all about. It's all about taking things um, and trying to solve them. So many people at that time started to think, how do I get into and out of a puzzle maze? Are there algorithms that I can use to crack them? And one of the algorithms that people came up with was this, um, that if you have a maze like Hampton Court, um, maybe 
you could try solving it by always keeping your hand on the hedge. Who here has tried cracking a maze keeping their hand on the hedge? Okay. So the idea is, and, and they, this is reported in um, Three Men in a Boat, if you want to crack a maze like this, if you keep your hand on the hedge, then maybe you might be able to get um, into the middle. Let's test this as an idea. So um, here's this idea that people came in. Maybe we could crack it using hands on the hedge. Now, for those of you who are not mathematicians, let me tell you how mathematicians work. If they cannot solve a hard problem, what they often do is they abandon it and replace it by a simpler problem and solve that one instead. Okay. <laughs> Believe me, that's how a lot of maths works. Um, there are reasons for this. So let's have a look at whether we can solve the following rather simple maze. Here we are. There's the entrance, and that's what you've got to get to. Okay? I don't think I'd get a lot of tourists coming to this one, but we can see whether we can solve it. Um, so here's my idea. We're going to always turn left. In other words, always keep my hand on the left hedge. And here we go. That seems to be... Yes, I've got that. Okay? And if I keep my hand on this hedge... I get out again. So it seems to work. My son has demonstrated this by the following animation. Now, again, how does maths work? If you solved a simple problem, maybe we can make the problem slightly more harder and see whether we can solve this. So if I'm um, a gardener building a maze, one way to build it is I build the outside and then I plant some more hedges which... Um, come off the original hedge I built. It's much easier to build a hedge that way because they kind of grow that way. Um, and the way we might try to imagine this one is it's the original one we had before with these things built on. And let's see whether I can crack this. Well, if I keep my left hand here, I get to here, and now I've got to a barrier. But if I just walk around that, I just get back to where I started again. I go round, walk around that, and back to where I started again, back to where I started again, and so on. And mathematicians often solve problems, as I say, by solving a simple problem. And then if they find a harder problem, they try to reduce it back to the simpler one, and then they solve that one. And a lot of maths works that way. Um, if I build some more hedges on the original hedges, I walk around this one. I know I can solve that. I just walk around there, back to where I was before, and round we go again, back to where I was before, and so on. And you can carry on building this up and building this up and building this up, and basically, we come to the conclusion that if we make a maze in such a way that um, if I ever have a hedge, I always build another hedge attached to the one I've already had and carry on like that, then I can crack it using my hand-on-the-hedge method. Okay, and that leads to the following um, theorem when it folds down. Then if I take a bird, here's a penguin, but any bird will do, um, and if that bird could walk on the hedges from the outside all the way into the middle, in other words, the hedges are all connected up, then you can crack the hedge using the hand-on-the-hedge method. Um, and let's show you that in action. Um, so if we take uh, Hampton Court, here's the centre. So if my bird got on the hedge here, walked from there, through there, and there, they get to the centre, and thus we know we can crack that using the hands-on-the-hedge method. Um, it, it doesn't work with Hatfield um, because 
um, they'd been rather cleverer in designing it. But it's, a, it's actually quite a good method because the hand on the hedge method will get you into the centre and get you out again, or it will get you into the maze and get you out again without going to the centre, but it will always get you out again. So you'll never actually get lost. So your strategy can be um, you go in, you wander around, you come out, and the people outside say, did you get to the centre? And you lie, and you say, yes, I did. Um, but at least you've got out again. Okay, let's move on a bit. Now, um, a bit later on, as I say, people tried the hand on the hedge method and found that it worked for some mazes but didn't work for others. And in order to crack a more general maze, you have to think a bit more carefully. And to think a bit more carefully needs us to understand about this, the theory of things called networks. And networks were invented by this guy. Well, this guy's actually Robin Wilson, but he's dressed up as Leonard Euler. And this handsome chap here is me pretending to be Bernoulli. Um, and we were giving a talk about um, networks at the uh, British Science Festival a year or so ago. So Leonard Euler lived in the 18th century, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time, and he was posed the following problem. There's a town called Königsberg, and Königsberg was built um, on some islands in a river, and the islands were joined up with bridges like this, and Euler was asked the question... Was it possible to walk around um, the um, islands in such a way that you went over each bridge once and once only? So let's see if we can do that. If we start from A, we go over that bridge, we go over that bridge, we go over that bridge, over that bridge, over that bridge, over that bridge, we get to there. But I haven't gone around that bridge, so to get around that one, I've got to go back over that one and over that one. It seems like I have to go over every bridge twice. And the people in Königsberg asked Euler, are they being stupid or is there actually um, a mathematical reason why this can't be done? Now, let me again tell you how maths works. Well, there's two ways maths works. One is that mathematicians go into their office, shut the door, think great thoughts, and um, several hundred years later, those thoughts become useful. And a lot of maths is like that. The alternative way is you look at the real world and you try to invent maths to crack real problems, and then you find that that maths has many other uses to other applications. Um, the latter is um, what Euler did on here. And what he did was he said, if you've got this sort of problem, um, then what matters is not the fact you've got bridges and islands and a river and all that sort of nonsense. All that matters is where points are and how they're connected up. And he reduced the whole of this island to a point he called A, that one B, that C, and that D, and said, if I join them up, the bridges become these lines here, and these become these points here, and this has exactly the same information as that. Anyone that goes on the London Underground will be familiar with maps like this, where the points represent the stations and the lines represent the um, connections between the stations. And then the Euler sort of generalise this idea into the idea of a network. So a network um, is a series of points which are called nodes, which are odd if you've got um, an odd number of edges and even if you've got an even number of edges joined up by edges. So that is a network. A network is a series of points joined up like this. And then he proceeded to study these 
using all the mathematics that he could think of and a lot of mathematics um, which he then had to invent to learn about them more. And one of the things that Euler discovered is that if you have a network and you set yourself the question of can I walk around it so that I go over each edge once and once only, that you could actually solve that problem. And here was his solution. Um, he said, and this is a big theorem that he proved, that if every point on the network has an even number of edges going into it, you can always walk around it so that you go over every edge once and once only. Um, if it has, at most, two points which are connected to an odd number of edges, then you can do it, but you've got to start at one of those points and finish at one of those points. And if it has um, more than two odd nodes, then you are stuffed, and you can never walk over each edge once and once only. That's Euler's result. That applies to every single network you could ever draw. Let's have a quick look at uh, the ones of the bridges of Königsberg. Um, what sort of node is that? Well, that's an odd node. We've got three edges there, three edges there, five edges there, three edges there. In other words, we have four odd nodes. And because we've got four odd nodes, we've got more than two odd nodes, so we can never cross um, that network going over every edge once and once only. What is the solution? Well, there are two possible solutions. The cheapest of the two solutions is to demolish one of the bridges. Um, so we can demolish, I think, this one. Um, the alternative solution is that we can build another bridge. Um, my understanding of this problem is that the Red Army did demolish the bridges um, in the Second World War for free, um, but they have since been rebuilt, and I think they've built an extra one so you can do it. Okay. <laughs> so if you build an extra bridge here between A and C, then A becomes an even node and C becomes an even node, and, and then you're in business. Okay, what's this got to do with mazes, which is the subject of this um, talk? Well, what this has to do with mazes is um, that the proof of this theorem, the, the argument that Euler used, actually leads to a method by which you can crack any maze. And that has all sorts of other applications as well. Why is that? Well, Euler realised, well, anyone can realise, really, think about it, that in a maze, um, there are basically points where you have to make decisions and points where you don't have to make decisions. So if we go into Hampton Court, we have to make a decision whether we're going to go in or not. Um, if we turn right, we get to a dead end. We can decide whether to stay there and kind of die or to turn around and come back again. Um, if we get to this point here, C, we can go left or right so we make a decision. But to go from A to C, we don't have to make a decision at any point until we get there. So all this stuff is just for show. That's the only point that matters. So you can write... You can reduce the whole of Hampton Court to a diagram like this, where that diagram has every bit of information you need. It's got the points where you make decisions and the connections between them. And looking at that, it's dead obvious how we crack the maze. We just go from A, C, E, G, I, K, M to the centre, or alternatively, A, C, E, G, H, I, K, M to the centre, and we've cracked it. If you want to be a bit more exotic, you could go A, C, E, G, you could go around here a few times, and then back to the centre. Okay. Now, we can see that. That's very easy. It's a bit harder to do that inside a maze. So um, the idea is we allow ourselves 
um, to double up, and that means that we can go down um, these routes twice. Um, so if we draw two of these, we can draw go around each time. Try to ignore that; doesn't matter. Um, and here we have a network where we have each of the nodes has an even number of edges joining up to it. Um, Euler's theorem says that I can construct a path through that network where I go down each edge once and once only. And if we take that theorem and start with A, it actually will construct you a route which takes you all the way into the center and all the way back again. Uh, it does visit every part of the maze on the way, so it's a bit inefficient, but it will get you into the center and out again with 100% certainty. And that's um, a very nice application of Euler's discovery. Um, that's the algorithm. I don't have time to sh tell you more about it, but if anyone wants to know more about it, you can go onto my website, and once you've got past all my quotes, um, it does have the algorithm on it. It has quotes from Star Trek as well as um, about teddies. Okay, now, what's the um, relevance of all of this? Well, networks, um, I've shown, are relevant to the bridges of Königsberg. They're relevant to the uh, mazes, but... The nice thing about mathematics is that if you take a problem and you then abstract it, then that abstraction suddenly becomes really useful in many, many, many other areas of application. And what is a network? Well, a network is a series of points which are joined together by edges. And here are some other applications of things like this. Um, a social network. Let's imagine we have everybody in this room... Some people in this room will know other people in this room. And if you know someone, then that's like putting a point on the, on the, um, you know, on the board with you as that point. And if you know someone, then you can draw in a line to somebody else on the board. And we could, we could sit down and work out a network of all the relationships of people knowing each other. And that's called a social network. Now, if we got a little bit more personal, we could do a sexual network Again, for the sexual partners in this room. Um, I think for decency, we'll avoid doing that. Um, um, my daughter spends a large amount of her life on Facebook, and she has lots of friends who are connected through being, um, well, quite literally, friends on Facebook. So these are social networks. Technological networks. We all use the World Wide Web, or I think well, most of us do. We all use the Internet. Um, again, in the World Wide Web, here is my computer... It's connected to somebody else's computer, connected to somebody else's computer, and information goes from one to the other, and it's just the same. Um, in um, biology, um, down here, you can have networks of who eats who, or um, networks of who infects who. And mathematical biologists um, use these networks to, to understand things like how disease propagates or how ecosystems work. Um, and um, a network which um, mathematicians or any scientists are always interested in is who cites who. I, you know, if I write a paper and I cite someone and they cite someone and so on, you get an interesting connectivity that way. Um, a more sort of subtle one is who copies who or who plagiarizes off who and so on. So um, these sorts of things actually are there and they're really rather important. Um, so here's a social network. Um, here are various friends in this network. Um, and, um, well, I said in the thing that I wrote to the press about today um, that if you listen hard, you might 
work out how to get a hot date at a party. I don't know who's come here wanting to get a hot date. But let me tell you, there's a very interesting sort of folk theorem about social networks. And that's called the Six Degree of Freedom Theorem. And what this means is that if um, you take essentially a random connection of people, it doesn't matter where they're from, um, and here's an example as such, um, then I know someone who knows 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 another person. If I get two people at random, on average, you don't need more than six people in between to find a connection between friends for who knows somebody else. And that's called six degrees of separation, and it's been tested quite carefully um, with things like email, uh, or people who send each other postcards and stuff like that. Um, I actually did, I was rather nervous about this, but I was contacted by The One Show, um, who got two viewers to write in, and we had to find six degrees, six points of separation, and we actually managed it. And it was all done on TV, and we were rather relieved when it worked. Um, how does it get your hot day to the party? Well, Chloe wants to get off with Dave. Um, how's she going to do it? Well, Chloe doesn't know Dave, but Chloe does know Basil. So she checks out to Basil, and Basil says, well, I don't know Dave, but I know Mary. And so Basil introduces Chloe to Mary. Mary says, I don't know Dave, but I know Bob. So Mary introduces Chloe to Bob, and Bob says, oh, I know Dave. So he introduces Chloe to Dave, and that's how Chloe gets Dave as her hot date. Okay, so you might wish to try this out next time you're at a party. Hmm. Uh, I can tell you some stories. It's, it's, it's not quite how I met my wife, but not terribly far off. Okay, so that's a social network using this result. Um, here's a rather more complicated one. Um, people, as I say, have studied these a great deal. Sociologists study these things, and uh, they um, look at um, things like groups within the network. This is a, um, a social network for... Um, um, an American high school, which I got off the web. And this is kind of interesting. So you've got white people, black people, and green people. Um, and this is how they all know each other. And I think the point about this was that the black people tended to know black people, and white people tended to know white people. Um, and, and there was some evidence of social um, incohesion there. Um, here's, here's another network, um, the Internet. That's a picture of the Internet. There we go. Um, here are some um, other ones. So that's food. So I apologise, this doesn't mean anything. But networks, when you've got millions of things on, tend to look a bit sort of confusing. Um, but comp on the computer, they're not so bad. This is collaborations. And this one's an interesting one. This was sexual contacts in Sweden. Um, so some people, that one's doing rather well. Um, that less so. Um, <laughs> And these are very important because they help you understand... The Sorry? Is that you? It was you, was it? No, oh, no. I always wanted to know who that was. Um, anyone know who this one is? This one's interesting. That one's really interesting. Um, um, okay. Um, these are important because, I say, they help you understand um, the spread of things like HIV. Okay. Um, what, what's this got to do with maths? Well, faced with a, math, um, a network... Um, mathematicians ask themselves questions, um, things like, um, again, six degrees of separation, how interconnected it is, and that's incredibly important in terms of um, the World Wide Web and, and linking us up. Um, they can ask questions like, um, are there groups of friends? Are there clusters of people that all know each other? Um, and that's very, very important in things like spread of disease. Um, 
or they can ask information. One thing I do a lot of work on is how information spreads through a network. Um, so if you have a network like Facebook and, and you have a rumor starting, how does that rumor spread around? And that's really very interesting, and these are questions that mathematicians can actually ask. So I've come out of time. I'll just whiz through to the end, because most of this isn't important. Um, I'd like to conclude by saying that networks, we started thousands of years ago with mazes and learnt dark things about them, um, and they lead to a really interesting um, area of maths, um, which has a rich, both a rich history and great relevance to the modern world. This is what I love about maths, that ideas which are 3,000 years old are still just as up-to-date and as important now as when they were invented. Um, and that's important to tell government when they want you to have immediate impact, to say, well, in 3,000 years' time, this might be useful. Um, um, one th other thing, if there are any teachers in the audience, um, I, I, I think that networks and mazes are fantastic ways of teaching young people about mathematics and getting them motivated um, because you can, you know, do lots of investigations and you go on field trips and all sorts of things. Um, but truly, as I say, they are a way, if you've got lots of friends, to amaze them. Thank you very much. Thank you.